Hello everyone, this is the new episode of your absolute favorite radio video show, Deep Divers. I am Mark, talking to you from the south of Belgium, from the picturesque region of Wallonia. And uh, co-hosting with me is, of course, my very dear friend Natalie from the land of Baden-Württemberg. Yeah, in the south of Germany, I'm just melting away. <laughs> <laughs> so, in spite of your melting condition, we can be said to be our listeners and viewers' favorite dauntless dive deep divers duo. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Very well said. Yeah, what is our topic today? So, our topic today is a very interesting one. So, you, you, you might have already noticed that we uh, always go about big topics. That's our trend. And uh, our big topic of today is the science. No, sorry, it's the other way around. I'm correcting myself. The religion of science. So, a word of introduction is in order, I think, because to um, some of our listeners, that title might sound like an oxymoron, because how could science be a religion, right? Since we have been presented with the overall concept that these two areas of human life are polar opposites to one another and that they are based on two uh, entirely different approaches to, to reality because uh, the way it was presented to us and fundamentally i believe this is actually totally valid so in principle uh, religion is supposed to be primarily based on faith, uh, embracing concepts that are unproven, uh, embracing concepts that are basically beliefs that cannot be questioned. Meaning that even if facts seem to contradict the beliefs that are at the core of religion, beliefs are still overriding facts. They are deemed more important, more crucial, more essential than facts. And you cannot question those beliefs. Science is supposed to be the exact opposite of that. Science is supposed to be based on, not on beliefs, but on open-minded, open-minded investigation, meaning that you observe phenomenons. And from your observations, you do your best efforts to formulate theories, theories that are an attempt to provide an explanation for the variety of phenomenons that you are observing. And uh, a very important condition of the scientific approach, a very important characteristic, is that if empirical evidence, which is a fancy expression for facts, 
if observed facts are actually at odds with your theory and contradict your theory, at a certain moment, uh, uh, th there will come a point. There will come a point where you will come to the conclusion that your theory is invalid because it is in opposition with facts, observable facts. And when that is the case, the scientific approach is supposed to drop the theory that has proven to be inadequate and insufficient, and then try to formulate an other theory that offers a more compelling explanation for the, obs the observed facts. So normally, uh, if you are really sticking to the scientific approach, you hold very lightly to your theories because the theory of today might be, uh, become obsolete tomorrow and you would have to, to drop it. Okay, that is how science is supposed to work. Unfortunately, uh, it has very often not been the case. Uh, there were times in history where um, science was officially, officially subordinate to belief. Uh, science did, didn't have the right to contradict the beliefs that were edicted by religious authorities. Science just was not allowed to go there. And according to uh, the official narrative of history, we have gone beyond that period in time. Science has freed itself from the tyranny of religious authority. And now science can go wherever it wants. Is that, is that the case? <laughs> very good question, Natalie. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> well, there's been uh, an evolution in the practice of science. And I would say um, mainly since the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, where science has become, in fact, more and more expensive. Scientific research has been made more and more expensive because it requires access to scientific equipment that is more and more expensive to manufacture and produce. And that is a very, very big problem because when that happens, you introduce in the scientific field, in the practice of science, a hugely problematic factor that is big money. If you are a scientist and you cannot function without big money, you become very vulnerable. You become dependent on your ability to access substantial funds in order to conduct your research. Not only to conduct your research, but to have 
what in our society is called a career and at the end of the day you it, it even conditions your ability to earn a salary to have an income which can be a direct threat to your uh, ability to function in society at all yeah so what we see has been introduced here is financial leverage and who is able to use financial leverage well it's not rocket science that part it's that's really uh, it's it's really the the good moment to use that expression it's not rocket science it's the people who control the largest amounts of money yeah, it is the money and it is not rocket science, but relationships also. You have to have the connections. Um, if you are cast out of the um, university um, where you are supposed to teach or stuff like that, while people are studying in university, they are forced already to make connections. Cause your connections um, make sure you will have an income and also that you have the status that you are seen as somebody who will have the funding and also have the influence because as science is the new religion it is really important um, that you are an authority in where you are in the whole system and um, for people I know who have been real geniuses, but have not been able to um, make these connections because <laughs> very often you have this nerdy person who's really, really intelligent, but um, doesn't function very well when it comes to relationships. You are not able to um, have the connections to the influential people who then will yeah bring you into a position where you will have the position to to to, to get the money that you need just for your personal survival but then also for the uh, the uh, equipment yeah that as you said is really costly um, and if you don't have that, so you need both. You need the influential people for the connection and the reputation um, that they will, that your, your articles will be in, in the literature of the influential um, publications that is needed. So you have to make yourself a name and you need the money, you need both and uh, they go hand in hand so it is it's like in in the old days in the church yeah uh, where you are up in the ranks <laughs> that you're seen as an authority and if you get the money from rome for example <laughs> for building your church so you have used uh, you have said um science is the new religion and i find that to be a very important sentence and uh, I, I would like us to explore that 
in a more detailed, uh, in a more detailed way, in an, in an articulate way. Um, I agree. I agree with that statement. And what that means, in my opinion, among other things, is that nowadays, especially in the current uh, crisis situation that we are uh, living through, science is presented to us as the ultimate authority on what is real and what isn't. And uh, we have heard that a lot these last few months. Listen to science. Trust the experts. Like, like, it's always the same mechanism, like we were supposed to trust priests because they are the ones who know. Your own individual experience as an assessment of reality doesn't matter. It has no validity. It is the experts who know. And they are going to tell you what is real and what isn't. Now we have observed a really interesting phenomenon these last few months is that when the experts were debunking the official version of things and claiming that that official version of things was bogus, all of a sudden they, these experts were vilified. They were smeared. They were not to be listened to anymore, or they were just ignored. And it was just the good experts, the right experts, that were supposed to be listened to. And who were the right experts? The ones who were allowed on TV sets, basically. Can anyone use the word propaganda here? Here we go. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and it was really, um, we could observe how doctors uh, dare to speak up on YouTube, for example, and they have been banned on YouTube. And if you share um, their articles and their videos, you share them on Facebook, you've been punished yeah, um, for doing that and for simply giving another point of view. That, that is what I find really, really dangerous, is if you are punished for simply speaking out loud another opinion or for sharing another point of view. And that is what has been taking place over the last few months worldwide. Yeah. That's so, scary. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that we see here, and it's not new, it's nothing new, it's just becoming very visible in the current situation, is that dissident scientists are being branded as heretics. And uh, it's not like in the Middle Ages, they're not uh, burned at the stake anymore. They are just cast out. They are just... Uh, either ignored or attacked, and most importantly, defunded, so that they are being rendered impotent. No need to burn them at the stake, you know? <laughs> but um, 
going really going back to the core of this claim that science is a new religion, we might ask the question, how is that possible? How did that happen? What happened to the promise of science to free human thought from the constraints, from the chains of enforced beliefs? Well, for the last few millennia, religion has been used as the primary control system over humanity. And if you trace religion back to its source, you find the gods. You find the, the, the greatest control freaks of the universe. As human beings, we have been macerating, marinating in that environment, that energetic environment of religion for several millennia. It's been imprinted uh, into the DNA. And that blueprint and imprint, even though Western societies have become apparently very secular, very independent from religion, that blueprint is still incredibly present. And it is permeating uh, all kinds of institutions and, um, and fields of uh, areas of human society. Uh, for instance, our political system is still very religious in nature. How many people vote for uh, a candidate, especially uh, in countries that have presidents? How many people vote to elect a president waiting for that individual to save them, to be their messiah, the one who is going to solve the problems of society? Um, how many people believe, uh, less and less admittedly, but if we go a little bit back in the past, how many people were blindly believing anything their favorite political party would say without trying to, uh, to check at all whether that was real or not, or whether there could be alternate viewpoints uh, political parties function very much like churches. <laughs> well, nowadays it's more like businesses, in fact, but <laughs> a little while ago, <laughs> they were still very much functioning like churches. So uh, that religious attitude is still very present. And uh, you just have to have a look on social media at the discussions people have and how incredibly intolerant they can be of other people's perspective on basically anything, anything at all. And mostly you only see two positions. Uh, if it comes to a political system or if it comes to 
science. There's just yes or no, uh, left or right. You only have those two positions uh, that are fighting each other. And that is something I see as totally not congruent with science, because science doesn't have just this point of view or this point of view. It tries to look from all angles. And we, we don't have that. I think we never, never came to the point or the average person never came to this point in their evolution where they re recognize there is more than just left or right, warm or cold, uh, black or white, where there are many, many different angles to, to, to look at the subject. And um, this is, for me, the, the real spirit of science is I don't want to be wrong, and I don't like it if you prove me to be wrong, but there is this short moment where I don't feel um, good with myself. If you tell me something and I have to admit, okay, I've been wrong, there is this short moment where I feel uncomfortable. I think that is called ego. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, 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 no. But then uh, what is what then happens is really, really important for me. Science is actually has to do with character. Real real scientist needs character. Cause he will go through this moment of inconvenient emotion um, because his his longing to know more and to know the truth has to be greater than his ego. And so actually what is happening uh, in, in this moment where I might feel a little bit dumb, <laughs> you know, when you prove me wrong, um, this might feel as if I'm a little bit stupid, but actually this moment is the moment where my consciousness expands. Mm. And that is proving that I'm not stupid because I allow your different point of view to widen my horizon and to, to expand my consciousness. And that is why I think it is actually a matter of consciousness and character if a scientist is a real scientist, because mostly they simply cling to their um, belief and to their ego <laughs> and their status mm. and um, are not willing to look at things from a different angle and to question themselves. Real scientists always question um, the own theories from my point of view. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I totally agree and um, well, I don't have another perspective to offer on that one. <laughs> I'm sorry, so I can't expand your consciousness on that one. But, but um, that an aspect, an aspect of that huge credit that is being um, offered to science and scientists these days is based on that actually pretty naive perception that science exists in a kind of island that is separated from the rest of society 
and that science only deals in a kind of chemically pure realm of investigation. And uh, could we please remember that scientists are members of society and that, as we mentioned, they have interactions, uh, really crucial interactions with the world of money, for instance, and that they can be driven by their own ambitions and their own desire to uh, content mommy and daddy and not disappoint mommy and daddy with becoming a dissident and an outcast. For instance, could we maybe remember these basic facts about human beings and the way they tend to function? So, um, what I would like to do now is to focus on a specific area of science because it is the one that we are confronted with in the most acute way at the moment. It is the field of medicine, of course. So uh, since we are currently witnessing the uh, um, enforcement of a new brand of medical dictatorship, it might be interesting to check to what extent the kind of medicine that is presented to us is actually passing the test of scientific criteria. Are you daring to check the fact checkers? <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact checkers check medical doctors where they're not in agreement with the narrative. So uh, fact checkers are very bold themselves apparently because uh, they are out experting the experts <laughs> when it suits them <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I really want to have a look in the first place at what is arguably the core element of uh, modern scientific medicine or what we call that, which is the germ theory, right? Oh, that's so, a good one. <laughs> that is such a, a strongly ingrained part of everyone's worldview these days, almost everyone, that you have a, a large number of diseases that are called infectious diseases that are caused by microbes. And uh, since these microbes are being propagated, uh, these diseases can be transmitted from one person to another. And in order to prevent that, you better wear masks. If you're a good person, at least, if you're a responsible citizen. So um, where did that germ theory come from? And how was it confirmed by experiments and empirical evidence? Well, uh, the germ theory has actually a pretty long story because usually we think it started with uh, Louis Pasteur in France and Robert Koch in Germany. 
That, that's interesting, actually. Uh, it's like a, an interesting little embryo of the European Union, somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but they might have been wrong anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Although they spoke our language. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> so, Pasteur, interesting character, that one. Uh, one of the uh, saint heroes of modern scientific medicine. You know, it has its little pedestal that you're supposed to prosternate yourself at. There is um, a German saying, gods in white, to doctors. Uh, we, we call them gods in white. Do you have a saying wow, like that? In, no, in, we in don't. No. no, no. Yeah, they, they, they call them, yeah, our gods in white. What has a little bit of an ironic, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I would imagine. I yeah. would imagine. So, uh, in fact, he wasn't even a medically trained uh, expert. He was a chemist. Pasteur was a chemist. And he wasn't the first one, as I said, to have uh, pushed uh, that germ theory. But it's with him that it really took root and that has a lot to do with his personality because he, he was a really ambitious man and uh, he was definitely a schemer it had he had the right mindset and uh, skills and attitude to push himself and to court authorities in a way that they would listen to him so he, he was well in court. He was well in court with authorities. Uh, and for instance, he was listened to by uh, Emperor Napoleon III in France and his wife, the Empress. So the thing is also, unfortunately, he was a bit of a crook. And uh, doctors might try to burn me at the stake for preferring such blasphemous assertion <laughs> but but uh the fact is pasteur was holding notes for his experiments as any scientist should do but he was also writing a private journal a diary and uh, upon his deathbed he had Addicted a kind of strange decree that was in his testament that his inheritors were specifically forbidden to publish his diary, which of course could have been um, very interesting to many people. The great Pasteur, you know, the, the private thoughts of such a giant of modern science, who wouldn't be interested in, in sharing those lofty considerations? And it's uh, only several generations after his death that said diary was finally published. And uh, lo and behold, it appeared that the man was actually falsifying his, ex his own experiments. Wow. Ouch. And you've probably, you've probably never come across any big media campaign to actually uh, <laughs> divulge that inconvenient truth 
Hello, Al Gore, to the world. <laughs> yeah, because uh, this huge house of cards is standing on that theory. And we have this, when it comes to history, we have this in medicine. If you take away one of the foundations, mm -hmm. the whole house of cards comes down. And yeah. so they, they won't, won't dare touch that. Yeah. Now, speaking of house of cards, uh, I've just focused on Pasteur and I, I don't want to make German people jealous. <laughs> so now let's have a look yeah. at Dr. Robert, Robert Koch. Tell me. <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Robert Koch uh, proposed, uh, addicted, <laughs> um, theorized, uh, what is still known to this day as the Koch postulates, and there are four of them. I'm not going to uh, 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 explain all four of them, but these are supposed to be the postulates that must be fulfilled in order for a specific germ, which is a microbe, you know, uh, to be considered responsible of a specific disease. And the first postulate, which is really a, a common sense, a common sense um, rule that he uh, uh, he edicted. I'm using the word edict because these people are such authorities, you know, scientific authorities that you can really speak, speak of edict. So postulate number one, for a microbe to be considered responsible of a specific disease, that microbe has to be present in all people who are displaying the symptoms of that disease. You have to find that very same microbe. And the uh, complementary opposite of that, um, all people who have the microbe in their body must have the symptoms of the disease. That's common sense. Right? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, this coronavirus, aren't there all those people having the virus and no symptoms at all? They're, they're just me asking stupid the, little. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're the uh, asymptomatic carriers. Oh. Those who uh, tend to think of themselves as invulnerable and uh, tend to act in very irresponsible and selfish ways because. Uh, they don't care whether they propagate the evil virus or not. Yeah, but if they have to have those symptoms to have, uh, it's not working. <laughs> well, that's the problem, Natalie. That's the problem because, let's be clear here, there is not one single, not one single infectious disease that has satisfied to the criteria of the first postulate of Koch. Not a single one. It is very common for people to have an infectious disease and you cannot find the pathogen that is supposed to cause it in their body. And it is also very common to have people who have that pathogen in their body who don't display any of the symptoms that are supposed to be caused by that pathogen. Yeah, and that should make people think. Well, 
that should make people, medical people, say these corpuscles, they don't work. Yeah. We should get rid of them. Yeah. Instead, uh, what we see happening, and that's just one example, you know, because really, um, I I've been reading a very, very interesting and very thick book, <laughs> over 700 pages of small characters by these two researchers, uh, Don Lester and David Parker. And the book is called, What Really Makes You Ill? Why Everything You Thought You Knew About Disease Is Wrong. And uh, it is a systematic uh, debunking and dismantling of the germ theory. And uh, they explain uh, with lots of examples and, and details and scientific articles and scientific books that it's never been proven. Germ theory has never been proven. And not only has it never been proven, but what has been proven is that facts are contradicting the germ theory in an abundance of ways. So if you are a real scientist and you are really um, adamant on implementing the scientific method, what do you do when a theory doesn't work, when it doesn't match the facts? Well, you ditch the theory. Yeah. Has the germ theory been ditched? Absolutely not. They are clinging to it for dear life. The medical establishment is clinging, clinging to it for dear life, as if their, their very life was depending on it. In certain ways, it is, actually. But um, that, that is the hallmark of a religious attitude. Yeah. When the dogma matters more than the facts, that is the foundation of religion. Hence, again, our conclusion that science has become a religion. Yeah, I have a question because for a long, long time, I didn't question the germ theory and me, myself, I'm, I'm someone who says, yeah, it's, it's working. I'm more about the practical side of life than about theories, as I, I tend to do what is working and then think about why might it work. And yeah, then I try to, to make up a theory. Um, but always this might change because my conclusions, they might be wrong. Yeah. And what I have seen is that actually some illnesses seem to be contagious. This is something that I could see by observation. I also recognize that they seem to be contagious, but it, it depends on the person. If the person has a really healthy lifestyle and the person itself is really balanced and um, then the person is able to fight it or, or balance it out or however you want to put it. Um, and 
Me, myself, for example, I was somebody who always um, has been struggling with cold. Every winter, I, I, I catch myself a cold for five or six times in a row, yeah? Until I realized, okay, I have to react soon enough and then um, give myself um, lemon, hot lemon with honey and ingwer and maybe a little bit of rosemary inside of it and drink that and have a good night's sleep and everything is fine again. So I realized something like these seem to be things that are contagious, but then uh, when we um, change the surrounding, then the disease will not be able to overtake our health. So why are things contagious if the germ theory isn't working? Do they explain this in, the, in this book? Uh, they explain it partially, and uh, I believe there is another aspect to that phenomenon. But if we look at things the scientific way, uh, what is contagion? Uh, where is that belief that a disease is contagious? What facts, what observable, what observable facts is that based upon? It is based on the fact that in a certain area, uh, multiple people seem to exhibit the same symptoms roughly at the same time. And uh, I don't know who gave that example anymore, but someone said or wrote, uh, wrote actually, someone wrote, uh, okay, if you find a pod of dolphins in the ocean, and they're all becoming sick and they're all exhibiting the, safe, the same symptoms. What is going to be your first reaction, your first spontaneous reaction? Are you going to extract uh, biological samples from them? Are you going to culture the, their cells and uh, trying to isolate germs and uh, genetically profile these germs? Or are you trying to look whether there has been a contamination in that area of the ocean where they live? Yeah. What's going to be your yeah. yeah. And so um, a lot of times it would be very interesting instead of uh, uh, trying to eradicate germs to look for environmental pollution in an area where many people become sick at the same time and are exhibiting the same symptoms. So that's, that's one first response to that question. And uh, it is indeed uh, the fact that there is a whole number of diseases that seem to be much more prevalent in winter than in summer. And uh, what could be the reason for that? Well, yeah, I'm not out in the sunlight and I don't have fresh food uh, with a lot of vitamins uh, in it and that is the reason why when I get myself some uh, yeah, a, a good um, lemon with honey I'm, I'm helping, I'm assisting my body to um, yeah, have all he needs and a little bit of rest so he can do his work mm -hmm. and get along with whatever I have in, inside of me. Yeah. And um, 
a very interesting aspect of uh, these diseases that are deemed to be infectious is that usually you lost appetite when you have these diseases. So why is the body shutting down your appetite? Well, maybe because it wants you to stop eating. And why would the body want you to stop eating? Maybe so that, and that is, that is scientifically proven, so that it can enter a detoxing process and expels toxins. And why does it want to expel toxins? Well, maybe the toxins caused the disease in the first place <laughs> because the body was somehow poisoned. And a lot of your um, body police is actually sitting in your digestive uh, system. Mm -hmm. And so if your digestive system um, has to yeah, somehow work uh, properly to get rid of those uh, toxins, um, it doesn't want to, to, to bother with your, I don't know, last bowl of pasta or pizza or whatever it might have been, yeah? <laughs> Not get distracted with yeah. uh, really stuff that it doesn't need, yeah, mm -hmm. at the yeah. moment. And uh, the, the part about sunlight is also very important because uh, uh, we, know, we know that uh, um, when we get a lot of sunlight, we are much healthier. And so uh, it can be theorized as the sunlight uh, strengthening the immune system. But that is still part, what is the immune system, that, that term? I believe we, we shouldn't use that term immune system anymore because it is related with the germ theory. And when you ask really high level immunologists what they will tell you, well, the ones who are honest, what they will tell you is, we don't understand how the immune system functions. We have no idea. It is so complex. There are so parts that uh, we, uh, we don't understand. We don't know how it functions. Actually, there has been, uh, he's, he's a perfect example. There has been a German professor. Uh, his name was Pop, <laughs> P-O-double-P. -P. <laughs> and he was born in 1938 in my hometown, Frankfurt. And in the beginning, he was, um, yeah, he was like very much in the um, scientific community. He was very successful and then he made a huge mistake. He came up or he re-observed a theory out of the 20s that had to do with light. And so he is called the father of um, biophotons. Mm. And he said that light is actually information and so in food, you have to take in food that has a lot of light in it. And this guy, he had, his career has been totally destroyed. He has been really, yeah, financially, um, he has been really destroyed and his reputation has been really destroyed and only he died in 2018 and I think it has been the last 10 years of his life that um, his theory has been kind of validated, but still the 
um, it's more the uh, alternative uh, healers um, that have been looking into it, but actually it's been proven. It is really, uh, you could measure it. It is the light within your food that is really, really important. And the biophotons, they are really important for your health. And um, a little bit later in this discussion, uh, I would like us to um, have some focus on that subject of heretics, science heretics and uh, scientists who are outcasts of their community because they have challenged the dogma. But for now, um, Yeah, I would like us to continue on that subject of infection and uh, infectious diseases. How are, how are they being propagated? Uh, another interesting aspect that they mentioned in the book is uh, what about uh, childhood diseases? What about the measles? Uh, what about uh, <laughs> all these uh, rubella, all these... Uh, um, diseases that seem to propagate themselves amongst children. Um, may I again interrupt? Just because I don't know what you want to tell us, just I will come from the practical observer point of view. Yeah. As being a mother myself, and many, many mothers, they agree that children need those ailments because they always show up when a child goes through some evolutionary process. They show up at a special point of evolution. And mm. this, from my point of view, doesn't stop when you are an adult. Cause me, myself, when I get ill, that's normally a point <laughs> when my physics tells me, okay, you have to lay down and think about what you've done wrong, little girl. <laughs> there is an evolutionary process getting along with those ailments. And yeah, this is just, yeah, I'm curious, coming from a totally different angle, what you will add to that. Well, uh, I agree with what you said. And it is, I believe, connected with what they are saying, even though they don't see the connection. <laughs> Um, it is when we are going through a transformation phase, what, uh, one of the things that are going to happen is that our body is going to shed toxins, typically. Because it needs to make room for a new reality, a new perception of the world. And uh, many of these toxins are actually associated with uh, old beliefs that won't serve us anymore. So that's one of the reasons that we shed them. What they say, and it's actually connected with what we say here, is that, look, um, there is one thing that nowadays the vast majority of children go through at the exact same time, and it's vaccinations. They all get their vaccines at the same specific times in their life because there is an official calendar. And that is precisely the only thing 
that medical students learn during their seven on or nine years curriculum, it's the only thing they learn about vaccines, it's the calendar, because the rest apparently doesn't have uh, any kind of interest. And so um, what they argue is all right, so wouldn't it make sense that also around the same age, their bodies are trying to get rid of all the toxic material they were injected with, which is why many children around the same age are displaying the same symptoms. So it is actually the same phenomenon, but observed through two different angles. And that I would is what say. real science is. And that was the reason why I wanted to jump in before you show your explanation because real science is always looking from different angles mm -hmm. and then tries to find out, okay, what is um, contradicting itself and what might actually fit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I love that. Yeah, there is always, yeah, there is always a process of detox going yeah. along, you know, yeah. with that. And so uh, if we look at that other... Um, um, how would I call it, that other touchy, really touchy subject of vaccines, which is another of the um, cornerstones of what we are told is modern scientific medicine, vaccines. Um, they are presented to us by the medical establishment as unquestionable, you know? We That's hear that expression... It's a red flag, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You, you cannot question vaccines. The science is settled, is another of these expressions. The yeah. science is settled. If the science is settled, why are there hundreds of books written by medical practitioners, thousands of articles, uh, published in medical reviews, medical uh, papers, also, of course, by medical practitioners who are denouncing the um, terrible effects that vaccines are having on human beings and claiming that vaccines don't have a valid basis in science and that their efficiency has never been proved. Actually, um, the, I, I just have to think about a contradiction because, you know, homeopathic, how do you call it in English? Homeopathy? Homeopathy, yes. Yeah, yeah. is working with this principle where they bring in really, really small 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 dose of something with the same symptom into your body to trigger your body to um, heal it itself and they question that because it is such a tiny dose uh, that it cannot work but i know from own experience and observation it is working uh, that you can trigger the body by because it is about information from my point of view, it is about information. And when you have this information, 
and your body functions properly, then you will try to uh, work with this information and heal itself because yeah. you have the ability. Yeah. And in this case, they say it's not valid to give this information, but with vaccines that not that not have this tiny but much bigger dose, and then a lot of toxins on top of it, and and uh, genetic material and poison, then they say it is functioning. Mm -hmm. That's not making sense. No, no. But here you are touching uh, another very important aspect of this whole discussion, which is the uh, energetic aspect of diseases and of healing, yeah. which uh, modern scientific medicine is in completed denial of. Because why is it in denial of that? Because it is so controlled. It is so, so controlled. I would say that, okay, th this really needs some development. Religion was used to be the main tool of control. Science has been turned into another type of religion, another, an avatar, a modern avatar of religion. There always were people who were benefiting from religion, from the kind of perception filter that religion was imposing on people's awareness, mainly the priestly caste, but beyond the priestly caste, entities in more subtle planes. And if you go to the top of the ladder, the gods, I would argue it is the same with uh, the religion of science. The dogma that is being pushed and promoted is used to hide certain aspects of reality because these hidden aspects benefit the people who are really in control of science and beyond the people, the beings. If the average human being has no awareness of the energetic foundation of life, they're not going to try and use it to their benefit. Those who are aware of it will use it to their benefit. Those who control these perception filters want to keep the, what has now become a secret about life. <laughs> they want to keep that secret for themselves. They want to have exclusive use of it because that grants them power over the rest of the population who's unaware of the secret. So actually they've been making the real science an occult science. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, if we have a look at the energetic aspect of, uh, of diseases, um, I agree with you. It's all about information. So what is being pushed is that uh, the body is chemical in nature. 
As long as chemical balance is maintained, everything is okay. Already in the, in the 16th century, Paracelsus was, uh, was promoting that idea that it was about chemical balance and that you could reinstate that chemical balance using poisons. That's exactly what uh, uh, the pharmaceutical industry is claiming and promoting. You use poisons to reestablish chemical balance. So, um, that's the, uh, the perception filter. It's all about chemistry. But what is behind chemistry? What is actually triggering the uh, biochemical responses of the body? It is electromagnetism. The body is also electromagnetic in nature. That's why you can measure the activity of the heart or the brain uh, using, uh, using devices that translate the electromagnetic uh, activity as sinus waves. Um, but there is another level beyond and behind electromagnetism, which is pure information. That's light. Light is information. So what I believe is that these uh, supposedly infectious diseases can, in fact, can be propagated in a certain way from one individual to another, not through microbes, not through germs, but through the transmission of information carried by electromagnetic waves that then trigger bio biochemical reactions. Yeah, because there has to be this resonance. Mm -hmm. uh, as you know, I'm myself an energetic healer, having yeah. no idea actually. Uh, I don't care about biology or anything like that. It's not how I'm functioning and I'm, I'm focusing on the energetics. And that has very often a side effect on physical. Mm. Um, but my focus is on the energetics because I can sense if the energetics are out of phase, if they are out of balance. And that is, you have some information and if this person is in resonance with this information, then it catches the imbalance, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, often I believe that the information is being transmitted because the person who catches the disease actually needs that information yeah. to rebalance yeah. themselves. Because this is another thing, very often um, we are taught that pain has to, pain is a bad, bad thing. And uh, we, we are indoctrinated that um, we have to suppress pain. Under all costs, we have to suppress the pain. And actually, I myself, I totally dislike pain, but I came to the conclusion just by observation and being sensitive, energetically sensitive, that pain actually is the messenger. And we have to really appreciate this and get into contact with the message 
to heal. So if we suppress the pain again and again and again, this topic that wants to balance itself is never addressed in the end and might spread into your body more and more even. And yeah, then you have the painkiller on top of it <laughs> with all the poisoning. And yeah, you, you are getting out of balance more and more. Yeah. Now, um, I want to go back. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. <laughs> not at all. It's, uh, we are going exactly where we need to go. Okay. So uh, there is no distraction at all. There are explorations. Um, on that subject of science being controlled by the people who benefit from that control, Going back to the germ theory, it is really no wonder that this theory has been embraced with so much enthusiasm by governments, by political authorities, because it is so, so useful to them. And I believe that what we are going through now is such a fantastic demonstration of that. How utterly convenient if you want to assert and maintain and strengthen control over a population. How utterly convenient is that germ theory? Fantastic. It is a fantastic vehicle for tyranny. <laughs> Wonderful. Amazing. So uh, today we are really getting at the extreme the ultimate uh, development of that. But I would go as far as saying in, uh, that it's been that way from the very beginning, from the very beginning, because um, mandatory vaccination was actually introduced in England in the 19th century. Can you imagine that? And by the way, uh, Every time they were vaccinating, there was an increase in the disease that the uh, vaccine was supposed to prevent. Of course. Which is why people finally uh, rebelled big way against mandatory vaccination and they had, to, uh, they had to abandon that. They had to give it up because uh, people were getting really uh, seriously pissed off. So, um, it is a fantastic tool of social control that uh, that germ theory which is why which is one of the reasons why it has become germ dogma the authorities really encourage that very much now to look at how um, medical science evolved in the early 20th century well, again, we have the Germans to thank for that. You know, uh, Germans invented modern medical science, which is a laboratory medicine. Medicine that is being developed through experiments performed in laboratories. And that has spread uh, all over through the, the Western world. I'm going to explain how in a moment. But um, there is a fundamental problem with that approach. 
two fundamental problems. Problem number one is that when you are in a lab and you are making experiments on cell cultures, nowadays it's not even cell cultures anymore, it's more and more molecules. You are experimenting on molecules. <laughs> there is a tiny little problem with that. There's no life, no real life taking place. Number one, you are observing something that has been extracted from its natural ecosystem, which, is the, which happens to be the body. <laughs> so you are taking something out of its ecosystem, you are completely isolating it, then you are uh, uh, exposing it to whatever substance you want to expose it to, and you're drawing conclusions from that. So that is really the reductionist approach and the, uh, uh, the fragmenting approach of life. You don't consider systems, you only consider tiny parts and, and drawing conclusions from that. Yeah, they would, uh, they would argue that they are eliminating all influences that could uh, somehow um, intervene with their experiment. But that is actually the mindset that is behind it, total control. Mm -hmm. And really being obsessed with, I just take a tiny, tiny little piece and I will totally control that. And then I'm ruling <laughs> the universe. I'm ruling the universe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the king of the world. <laughs> Yeah, that is the mindset behind it. Yeah, yes. it has nothing yes. to do with real life. No. And the other problem uh, with that approach is that um, in order to prepare these, uh, these cells or these molecules for the scientific experiments, they use substances that in fact alter, they alter, of course, the way these cells are going to behave because their medium has been altered. Their, their, their environment, their environment has been completely altered and is now um, impregnated by, by chemical substances. So you really cannot draw valid conclusions from that kind of approach because uh, it is uh, totally ignoring really major, major uh, factors of how systems work in nature. Dear ones, this episode got much longer than we intended and we could have talked for hours and hours. Um, so we decided to split it into two parts to make it easier for you to contemplate for yourself and to digest what we have shared with you and so we wanted to give you a little bit time and space for this process and we hope you dive deep with us into the second part of the religion of science stay tuned <laughs>